This is the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast for September 15th, 2020. Welcome to the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast. My name is Drew Messenger Michaels, and I'm very glad you're here. Today I'm talking to Damon Reese, lead writer on Necrobarista. I think we do a pretty good job outlining the game. If you want to go in completely cold, then I encourage you to consider doing so. It's a very, very good game. Uh, but it's a pretty spoiler-free conversation. Uh, in fact, we just sort of dive in and sort of allude to things. Uh, so I will say we mentioned the Council a few times. That's the Council of Death in the game. And we also mentioned the Terminal, which is the coffee shop where most of the game takes place, where the dead and the living meet and have coffee. Uh, if that premise hooks you and that's sufficient, along with the game's really beautiful aesthetic, then go for it. Otherwise, if you want to hear more about it, again, no major spoilers, just a good conversation. So enjoy. I'm recording now. Excellent. I am recording the call as a backup. And since I'm, <laughs> since it's just been me praising you so far, uh, I think we're okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, so maybe let's start in the simplest place there is and branch out from there. Um, for anybody who hasn't heard of it or who has just sort of seen, a, you know, an arresting screenshot or heard the buzz on Twitter or something, what is Necrobarista? So Necrobarista is a cinematic, fully 3D visual novel set in a cafe that sits on the boundary between our world and the afterlife. Um, where the spirits of the recently departed can come for their last cup of coffee. That's pretty great. I mean, and it is like, it is a visual novel sort of mechanically, although not completely. We, we, we'll get to that, I assume. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, 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 the idea of liminal spaces, right? It like, uh, is, is very much what the game is about, right? It is a visual novel, but it's halfway between a visual novel and something else. It takes place somewhere where there are dead people and there are living people, but but neither is sort of settled. Um, it is sort of a game about, I, th I think you've said, like, it, it, it takes that thing that visual novels usually do where, where they're about teenagers, uh, because everything is emotionally heightened when you're a teenager, and finds other <laughs> ways to achieve that same level of emotional intensity. Be that, you know, just transitions or difficult changes or or the very idea of dealing with death, yeah? That, that's, a, that's a good point, yeah. Um, there are a, a few teenage characters. Um, the story sure, does sure. center around, around adults, but... Um... Now that you mention it, yeah, the the game is not only set in like a liminal space, but it also like sits in the space between like I think visual novels and uh, you know three D adventure games, maybe like the sort of stuff that Telltale was doing before they shut down. Um, we're, we're excited to occupy that space. Definitely, yeah, yeah. No, I think it fills it really well, and it's. I mean, we should say, you know, the parts that are that are like a visual novel are, you know, you're, you're advancing dialogue, uh, you're seeing the characters speak to each other, but you're seeing it in these sort of like gloriously rendered shots involving, you know, 3D characters, uh, mostly static shots with just a little bit of motion, uh, almost more like a like a like a manga than an anime, just in how every shot is composed, um, and then the other bits are you can sort of walk around the space in between levels and you sort of there's this really neat system where you collect insights about things you sort of collect words uh, and then can sort of spend what you've learned on little side stories so there is like a little bit of 3d traversal which is a great way to show off the environments uh in the game uh and it's also sort of a way to break up the pace because i think 
it's a really tightly told story in a way that a lot of visual novels aren't necessarily. This is not me throwing shade. I think it's a fact <laughs> of the genre. Uh, but so to have those sort of like interstitial moments in between what is a pretty emotionally intense and, and pretty like lore dense, I suppose, story uh, makes a lot of sense, right? It, it allows the the main storytelling to always sort of be not at 11, but, but you know, respecting your time and, and making good use of the unusually pricey resources that you're using to tell this tale. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one thing I'm really happy with about the story, um, even though it gets a little bit of criticism, is that it doesn't overstay its welcome. Um, I've I've played, you know, fifty to seventy hour long vision novels, and at some point you just zone out. You, you're just <laughs> mindlessly clicking away on on watching these two D sprites bouncing around, um, and and so yeah, like Necrobrist is is significantly shorter than your, your archetypical. Um, visual novel but it packs in a lot more i think in that runtime yeah well it's it's more like a film in that like if you want more playtime, it actually i haven't replayed it yet i've only sort of played through the main story once but i imagine it would very strongly reward a replay because there are all these sort of details about the world and and the characters pasts we don't have to get you know if you want to go over a spoiler event horizon at some point that's fine by me but it's your call <laughs> you know wh how the characters came to be in the situation they're in right all that stuff is seeded really early so it would sort of reward a replay right which which to me is preferable to as you say the sort of visual novel convention of you know never use one word when 12 will do and you know just sort of mm -hmm. restate everything thing exactly. some of some of yeah. which i've always thought is maybe an artifact of of dodgy translation uh but i think is also additional like it's that and it's just sort of the way the genre conventionally works yeah i think so um i i, I do think that necrobrist you know it, it it does some have some replay value particularly um you know in, in my approach to the to the main story i made sure to like do a lot of foreshadowing and if you go back through after playing once you'll like hopefully notice a lot of that you know just sort of see it come together uh in a, in a really lovely way absolutely yeah and the side stories are interesting too because they do sometimes give you additional context for some of the stuff you've seen but it's a bit up to you like the game directs you a little bit as far as which ones you know you're, you you wake up next to and can afford when but it's it's a little bit up to you which context you gain when and therefore whether you get you know foreshadowing or or you know reiteration or you know things about characters who don't even show up that much uh you know flesh out their stories a bit uh, it is like the, like the main game itself is perfectly linear, but there is sort of that like non-linear aspect of, of, of fleshing things out in whatever way is most interesting to you. Like if you really want to see all of Ashley's stuff, you can prioritize that and, and, you know, or, or, or something Absolutely. else. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the whole reason that we've got that exploration feature in is because, you know, we were playing, you know, early builds of the game and we were like, wow, we, we, we. <laughs> We want to walk around. Uh, we want to, you know, be able to explore, and so that was the birth of the what we call internally the explore scenes. Um, you know, between every chapter, where you, you have uh, a new spot in the cafe to walk around and, and really, you know, mush your face into, uh, and and players seem to find that really rewarding. It's it's that you've made these beautiful spaces, and and you naturally want to walk around in them. 
but it's also that like it's specifically a coffee shop like it's it's designed in every way to be an inviting space so like getting to just hang out in it like it perfectly captures to me i've never worked in a coffee shop but i did work in an art gallery for a while and that feeling of being in the space when none of the the people you know none of the customers the patrons are there like that that quiet and that moment of just like calm and feeling like the place is yours i think like those scenes capture that really really well um in between all the sort of emotional um, turmoil and and Melbourne, um, the the city that most of us live in, is a city with such a strong cafe culture and, and a very strong like gallery culture. Um, and, and you know, as you've as you've noticed, it really bleeds into uh, the way that we present everything. Absolutely, absolutely. So you are you are not from Melbourne, if I recall. You've you spent a bunch of time there, but you're from Adelaide, yeah. Yeah, from Adelaide. It's it's seven hundred kilometers away. It's eight hour drive. Um, there's nothing between the two cities, <laughs> but it's it's a it's a lovely drive. I that that sounds kind of great. I actually really love those kind of long like like you know drive, road tripping in Canada. You know, in North America is probably the most similar thing, right? In the U.S., there's always sure. cheesy, yeah. cheesy rest stops and whatever, but in Canada, it's just wilderness, right? Like if you want to stop, you're gonna you're gonna basically not stop, or you're going to put up a tent, right? Those are your those are your options. Yeah. Um. So so is is that the origin of the um. To my to an outsider's eye, the completely superfluous dunks on Adelaide that that crop up a few times <laughs> in the game. Yeah, so so the 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 dunks in Adelaide are written by me, which is why they're allowed. If they were <laughs> written by sense, someone from Melbourne, fair. they wouldn't be allowed because there's a there's a rivalry between the the two cities, generally a friendly one, um, since Melbourne is quite a bit bigger and uh, has more happening all the time. Um, so. Yeah. yeah, I, I no, like Adelaide. It's 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 a gorgeous, wonderful city to live in, but everything closes at five o'clock uh, <laughs> all year, and it's like, oh, I'm, it's the middle of summer. I want to go and get get a coffee at half past five, and I'm in the middle of the the, the city, and everything is shut. The sun is still like very high in the sky. It's like, what what is happening? <laughs> Yeah, no, there is that thing of um, sometimes those smaller towns have, you know, a ton of character. In fact, they usually do. But that is that is how you pay for it. Right. That uh, that yeah. that that I moment. Mean, Adelaide 20. has one, like one point three million people. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so smaller, but by no means small. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Why? Why? Why is that the case? Like there are cities in the U.S. that shut down at five, but it's usually because they're it's because no one lives there, right? People work there, but then there are like bedroom communities or suburbs that they go home to. That's not, that's not the case with Adelaide, right? It's just like a, an early, early bird culture in some sense. I don't know. That, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, I, I think it, it's pretty much just a case of it's the way it's always been. So it's going to continue being sure. that way. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, that maybe ties a bit into sort of the theming of the game. I mean, like, Australian coffee culture is a really interesting thing to me because um, because coffee culture is obviously like a global thing at this point. Um, my wife's family is from Colombia, right? And obviously, there's like a really really strong coffee culture there, but it's quite different from like the the cafe culture that like some of the fancier cafes in in the U.S. or for that matter in Japan. All my Australian friends assure me that this is all ripped off from Australian coffee culture, maybe even more specifically <laughs> Melbourne coffee culture, right? Um, how early in the genesis of the project did did it start to revolve around coffee right like as a as a thing to make it about hospitality and about like creature comforts before you move on from this life uh but also about you know it also as a way of making it you know thoroughly australian which i think the game is 
Yeah, so the first um, prototype called Little Moon was set in a um, a, a milk bar or a, or a diner, some some mm. sort of small establishment um, on top of a skyscraper <laughs> in Melbourne. Um, I, I wasn't part of the team back then, but uh, that's probably where it started. Because, you know, we all, you know, before COVID at least... <laughs> Uh, we would hang out in coffee shops a lot, and uh, I definitely like see that urge to build something set in a place that feels familiar. It's, I mean, one of the themes that kind of shoots through the game is that you know, if someone had a very limited amount of time left to to be in a familiar place, to you know, to before moving on, right? Let's just put it in that in the most generic of terms. They mm. may be less interested in the big questions than in just having one more moment of, of sociable, normal interactions. I, I feel like that, yeah. that resonates in the age of COVID in a way that you couldn't have possibly anticipated when you started working on the game, you know? <laughs> Not at all, yeah. And I, I'm actually really happy with, you know, the, the creative decision that we took uh, to to not address, like, what happens afterwards. Like, uh, as far as we're concerned, it's not important. Like, it's it's not even something we'd consider looking into uh, because that would just change the stakes in a way that would devalue our character-driven storytelling. Right. It's a, it's a beautiful sleight of hand that even even people who are involved in the administration of, of the process between life and death don't actually know you know, what happens when you die in all capital letters, you know, how the, how the yeah, scales no are weighted. It doesn't get into any of the, the stuff like from the good place about like, you know, you know, how one determines who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. It's just something people are anxious about without having any data. Yeah. And you know, I, I love the good place. Um, I, I think it started airing around the time uh, Necroparista started development. Um, but yeah, those, those, questions and those answers just weren't interesting to us so totally, we totally. didn't even try to try to approach them I, yeah and I, I definitely wasn't saying that this approach is like inherently better than the good place i like the good place a, a lot too you know like oh, not I, at all. yeah yeah there there is a sense in which the later seasons lose some of those like really big existential stakes like it sort of writes checks it can't cash and i mean and that's i guess why i bring it up right like there i think the good place ends up being very much about the characters which is a very smart choice but it sort of drops some of the like why does the universe work this way kind of stuff so in a shorter form narrative to just not even address those questions a allows you to tell a story about about like you know death within death and, and uncertainty and saying goodbye and all those sorts of things like if you're if you're talking about death those are the human ways to relate to death so you know to lose those because now everyone is effectively immortal uh is uh, is uh, you know is, is not a choice that's necessarily going to lead you to the mo- to the best dramatic places but especially yeah yeah it, it prevents you from from losing yourself in a nettle of lore about like exactly how everything works in a narrative that that already has a lot to explain in terms of how this world works and anyway isn't primarily focused on that is focused on the people absolutely like i'm i'm a big fan of games with really uh really dense world building um as long as it's like presented in an interesting way like i'm uh a massive and unending fan of metroid prime which um, <laughs> yeah can conveys its its world building in a, in a really interesting you know uh manner of presentation um and Necro am i getting Bristol, my wires so i was gonna say am i getting my wires crossed or did you actually make a metroid prime mod to sort of celebrate the storytelling in that game to do with the the visor <laughs> yeah i well, I, 
I don't know if I'd call it a mod. I, I used a piece of software called Prime World Editor to um, mod in some text strings, but I'd love to uh, expand on that idea. It's, it's been rattling around at the back of my head for a while. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's, that's clearly in the hopper. So I will, I won't press that too hard, but you were saying something about Necrobrews. I didn't mean to, didn't mean to cut you off. Oh yeah. I think I was just looking for an excuse to talk about Metroid Prime actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well then, then by all means, those, those games are incredible. And I mean, they, they are the exact opposite form of storytelling from a visual novel, right? Like they're, they're so light on exposition, uh, for the most part, it's, it's much more about just being in a, like embodying a character. Absolutely. But the the world building um the bit that stands out for me is that it works in such beautiful harmony with the game systems mm-hmm. and 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 the visuals in a way that i don't think we've seen in a game since mm. um so more people should be copying metroid prime <laughs> well that may be yeah i mean so you are a narrative designer by trade uh, oh, yeah, on, yeah. on this game, on Necrobarista, you're, you're credited as the lead writer, which which this is not in any way to diminish the role of lead writer, which is a very important and mm-hmm. very august role. But that is at least potentially narrower than what I would think of, and I think what you would think of as what a narrative designer does. So Absolutely, what, yeah. Yeah, was, was your role on this more just as the lead writer, or did you have a hand in, you know, UI and, 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 and fonts and, you know, like things that are that people don't think of as storytelling, but absolutely influence how the story is told? Yeah, so hilariously, you know, I spend my entire career grinding my <laughs> narrative design skills, and I my big breakout hit is a completely linear visual novel. <laughs> <laughs> sure, the least Metroid Prime thing you've ever worked on. <laughs> yeah, but I, I I was involved in in some stuff um, like a little bit of help with the storyboarding, for example. Uh, my my script was very very visual so i was leaving notes for the storyboarders and um stuff like facial expressions uh, which which is stuff that i didn't work directly on um ideas for like sound cues etc so it was probably quite similar process to writing a just a screenplay um which again you know ironic (laughs) Yeah, highly, highly. <laughs> yeah, because it is a story that is very um, like there. Is, like I don't know that it would work as well as a film, right? There, are, there are some games where you can somewhat tell that there are frustrated filmmakers working on it, and they can nonetheless be good games, yeah. right? But that's like <laughs> built into the DNA. I don't think Necrobarista is like that. I think it is. I think it is a game, you know, from the from the first, even when it is just a series of sort of linear, you know, dialogue uh, dialogue sections and images and such. Absolutely, yeah. And and my approach coming in um, when I joined the team was to take all of the elements that I had available to me as a writer and do as much as I possibly could with them. Um, writing for the for the form is is so important, and uh, and and it's it's been really gratifying to see this like actually mentioned in in some reviews and stuff. Uh, I definitely approached it like a stage play in regards to. The characters, like a very small cast of characters, uh, with this this in you know complex web of relationships between them, um, and just throwing them into a stressful situation and watching them bounce off each other. Absolutely. Did you did you start with characters? Did you start with like scenario and, and plot? What, what, you said you joined the project after some decisions were already made. So did you did you already have a, a setting to deal with? Some basic bullet points, like like what did you walk in on, and then where did you begin? You know, sort of sort of like crafting the thing that that we see now. Yeah, so we had the um, had had the setting, uh, 
had the character designs, um, had had character concepts, and had uh, a very particular feel that Kevin, the director, wanted me to um, convey. Specifically, what he wanted was, and he, he wouldn't stop talking about this, was the idea of, um, or, or the feeling of being at a friend's house for a sleepover and, and staying up late playing video games. Hmm. And that feeling when you, you know the sun's about to come up and you're going to have to go home soon, but you don't want to, and you just want to drag that moment out forever. Um, and so I, I think we, we captured that and probably quite a bit more. No, that's great. It does capture that moment. I mean, like that, because that's, yeah, that's like a, a primal memory of not wanting something to end. And of course, you know, like the, you know, staring death down is a much more, it's a much more high stakes uh, yeah. version of that. <laughs> right. But yeah, no, to find the confluence there makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested in the idea of approaching it like a play because it is almost there. There are some shots where you see the whole, uh, the whole coffee shop. And you can almost imagine it as like a single set play or like the sort of play where there's there's one big set that turns around when we're supposed to be downstairs or, or something like that. Like it is staged in this kind of very, you know, staged way. That's a silly sentence, but you know what I mean, right? It is a it is a cast Absolutely, of characters. Yeah. It's it's structured like uh, like a modern play in the sense that we have this very this this core cast, but then there are you know single scene or two scene characters who just sort of pop up. Uh, for you know, like important thematic reasons. Um, yeah, is- and, and they're, they're coming back later. Like we, we, we've got DLCs coming out with them, free DLCs uh, nice. for those characters. I was going to so say because like that makes it feel more like a play when when Samantha shows up, for example. But but it's it also seems to violate the other thing that is very interesting about the about the game. And violate is probably too strong a word, but it it it, it goes <laughs> against the grain of what's so impressive about it, which is that it feels as lush as it feels because I get the sense the team was ludicrously disciplined in terms of scope, in terms of only you know making what you planned to use a lot. Absolutely, and that that's a. A really important part of, of I think any competent game writer's approach um, being, being very aware of what you're able to do and doing as much as you possibly can with that uh, without making your artists or your programmers or your producers cry <laughs> right right yeah, yeah, oh, and and um, yeah. So so caring for the emotional health and the work the workload of your coworkers very important. But then <laughs> but then also making sure that they're not going to be you know scrambling after some unrealistic demand and therefore not giving the attention to the stuff that's really important that they otherwise could. You know, like having that sort of shared vision and that realistic sense of how to realize it. Like that's what separates a bunch of talented people. You know, in 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 pure chaos from a good team. I think absolutely and and. Like speaking realistically, the the team started out as university students um, who had never finished a game, um, and it it grew over the years, and we still didn't finish a game, but <laughs> we we, um, we we all got better at what we did. Um, our production processes evolved uh, to to suit a, a really. Uh, a game with a really intense focus on bespoke content. Like most of the animations and poses and faces you see in the game, uh, they're one-offs, um, which is a ridiculous way to make a game, and we're not doing that again. <laughs> but um, 
I, I think it's it absurd, works. but I got to say it's genius. I mean, because it's <laughs> the game shares a lot of DNA with uh, with NeoCab. I think not that not that it's influenced by that. The t- the the production timelines basically ran parallel, right? But I don't know if you've had a chance to play that game. Um, not yet, no. It's very similar in a lot of ways, in terms of being cinematic in the way it's framed, in terms of doing a little with a lot as far as character animation, you know, focusing on faces, in terms of not having spoken dialogue, like that being like a very early scoping decision in terms of, it's a lot less, it's a lot less linear, but in terms of like managing scope and and things like that, in terms of being about the service industry even, right? But I think what's super different about Necrobarista is that, you know, Neocab has a a relatively subdued sort of Western graphic novel look to it. Whereas in Mm -hmm. Necrobarista, the characters make these like ludicrous anime slash manga faces (laughs) that, you know, because they're bespoke, because that exact expression only comes up once, maybe twice. It's just, it sears the moment in your mind, even if the dialogue itself is like, it doesn't have to be as flowery as a lot of visual novels try to be because it's not just the words telling the story, the words. And I think what you've called the, the paper doll, it's so different from that. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the narration um, aspect of, of writing visual novels is, um, something I learned very quickly to move away from. If you play the game, you'll notice that like the early chapters have a few instances of narration, um, and those are basically in there because once I started writing the script, we once I finished a chunk of it, we'd immediately start implementing it. Um, so didn't really have time to go back and do big reworks, uh, and so all, all the later chapters have like no narration at all, um, and. I think that that works better because you literally just can show what's happening. You don't need to narrate it. Um, you can reveal that through character interactions or through just just visually conveying it. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, th- I think another thing you've said is that um, the conventional wisdom about you know a page of script is a minute of screen time or whatever, uh, which comes from film. It was not at all true here because people read at different paces and they linger or they don't or they speed or whatever that 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 uh, that turned out to be not even remotely true here in a world without spoken dialogue and where people might be reading it more like a graphic novel or a manga or they might be trying to pace it exactly like it's flowing in real time or 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 um, was that part of the challenge too right because because like it it is I don't know with a, with a visual novel it's pretty normal for you to advance the dialogue when you're ready, you know, however quickly or however slowly you, you like. But I, I feel like there's a lot less sort of visual information to take in with each of those uh, units, with each of those sort of stops. Um, were you sort of thinking of it? Like, how did you think of it in terms of like, well, this is a moment that people are going to probably stick around on for a sec. Are those just the moments with the sort of flourishy bespoke animations? Uh, was is it about like the sheer density of how many words? Like, like, how did you think about pace? It seems to me it's a big challenge in a game like this. That's an interesting question. So I, as far as pacing goes, I had the entire thing outlined before I started writing script. Um, and, and so fr- from minute one, we were like very aware of like how much story was in between, you know, all of these major plot beats and, you know, where the A plots and the B plots and the C plots or whatever, um, where each of those were popping up and uh you know giving the player something else to think about um i I was concerned when i was writing the script way back when um that it was too short actually because it's about 
I'm going to say 40 to 45,000 words long, which is like significantly shorter than pretty much any other visual novel I played. Um, but of course, our presentation is so different that I think anything more, like I said before, just might have overstated spoken. Yeah, no, I think that's true. As as I mean, do you ha- do you know the benchmark for the average word count for a visual novel? I I don't. I'm gonna say a hundred thousand words. Okay, um, okay. So like, a, so roughly closer to yeah, two three hundred thousand words. Yeah, least. sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Of course, they they range very widely. So you've you've referred to yourself as the least anime literate person on the team um i think you've also said you you sort of don't like most visual novels what, what i've never heard you say though is like like which ones do you like right and i i guess i wonder are they the ones that are a bit more succinct or is that something you had to inject like did you did you find you know good storytelling and, and a lot to love but but not uh you know a, a disciplined editorial hand in that genre so i i played a few I played a decent number of vision novels, um, but my, most of them are quite a while ago. Uh, the one that I I love the most and will probably stay in my heart forever is um, Christine Love's extremely adult-rated visual novel, Lady Killer in a Bind. Love that game. Um, yeah. And and that's just because of the the fascinating structure and the the really 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 like best in class choice design that she's put in. Uh, <laughs> You know, when a game gives you the option to just literally start shit, like, <laughs> that's, that vision always peaked back in, you know, 2016 or 2017 when the game released. <laughs> they haven't gotten better since. Um, another one that I really love, like, again, for its, like, really cool choice design is Save the Date, uh, mm. which is a bit of an older one, but it's a really cool sort of meta narrative about the replayability of uh dating sims interesting yeah yeah i mean i i maybe on that note something that maybe sets necrobarista apart i'm I'm saying this tentatively because there's dlc coming and this may not remain true but necrobarista is not at all a game about dating or romance or sex explicitly like nothing past flirting really um Yeah, yeah 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 and that's it seems to me a very deliberate choice because because so many visual novels are I mean you know even even moving aside from games that are that are erotica and you know and, and obviously Lady Killer in a Bind occupies this weird space where it is quite explicitly sexual but it's not um, I don't even know how to put it it's it's not like it's not what film crit Hulk would call pornographic right it's not just <laughs> sure. there to gratify you all of the sex and all of the power dynamics therein are there for theme and character reasons right absolutely um, yeah 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 but 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 you know just kind of you know takes a completely different turn, right? Was was that, you know, like like how much in the game's DNA was that, you know, as as you were deciding what to sort of honor or or echo from the visual novel genre and what to what to twist? Was that sort of an early decision that you were going to not center that stuff at least in the core game? Yeah, absolutely. Um one of the really early decisions I made um was born from the from the thought process of what if I center this story around an incredibly intense platonic relationship mm. um a relationship where uh it's, it's been tested it's uh had some some bad things happen in it but it still remains very passionate um because particularly between uh characters who are a man and a woman like you don't see that in games um or in quite a lot of stories um and that was 
uh, yeah, that, that was a big thing I wanted to do going in. And I, I think I, I'm really happy with how it turned out. It was really refreshing, and also, and also just to to show the the you know the mentor mentee or teacher student relationship without the creep factor, uh, which which exists a lot in life, but you don't see as much you know in uh, in in media. I think, especially absolutely, in yeah. Is it fair to ask whether that stays true in the DLC or whether because I, the reason I'm asking is is one of the characters this this is like a very minor spoiler, but one of the characters, um, uh, Samantha, who comes in at one point in the story. You know, there is like there is like a flirtatious uh, dynamic between her and uh, and Maddie, uh, mm-hmm. and that it seems to me that is something that I would expect a longer game to at least give you the option to, or you know, or in a linear game, definitely, you know, flesh out more. Right? Is that the kind of thing that you're looking at for DLC? Is it definitely not that because you want to sort of subvert those expectations, or is it sort of too early to say? It's definitely not that. Um, the the DLCs. Uh, focus on uh, one of them focus on focuses on Samantha and some other characters and uh, the other one focuses on Tuan and, and Hannah um, that's great yeah and, and and you know M- Maddie appears I'm not sure about Chan Ashley but uh, yeah they're, they're very very much focused on the side characters and not, and not in the main cast that's great that's great because we don't you know like they're they're great characters, but we don't know much about them in the main story, right? And it, and it maybe says something about like, yeah. how my brain is damaged by visual novels that my first thought was... And, and so, you know, so we can date Samantha or whatever. Like, I, my brain immediately went there, even though, of course, there's a million more interesting questions to ask about Samantha. Um, we don't we don't really... There's a lot we don't know about her. I'm not going to say any more because I don't want to... I don't want to even spoil the mysteries as they're seated. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that's great. I think, I think it's really important to expand the space of what a what a medium or a genre can do right and like christine love does that in a very different way right she, she goes full bore for for the tropes but then just does them in a, in a thoroughly thoroughly different really thoughtful way for sure yeah this is this is more about like avoiding some of those tropes and exploring the rest of life other kinds of relationships other kinds of positions in life other other ages people people are in the and the the psychological space of that um it yeah it's just this beautiful like almost literally in the text but also figuratively this pocket dimension where all of these things you don't usually get to think about in a game get worked out yeah i mean you know, vision novels have been really missing out on featuring Australian bush ranger Ned Kelly like what are they doing <laughs> I know I know it's really I, it was sitting right there it's amazing that y'all got to it first it, would you would you um if, if we could take a total uh left turn um I I, I do want to talk a little bit about you know you said that representation is something that's really important to you in games that that you know that that this game is not sort of primarily about that but like you know disability representation is in there that it contains and i'm going to quote you to yourself i apologize for that it contains something oh, no. other than <laughs> quote bland visual novel queerness written by straight dudes uh there's there's a little bit more you know flavor to the character to the to the characters than that um you know when did i say that <laughs> uh you said it in, an, in an, another podcast um i do not remember the name of it but i will i was listening to basically all the interviews you had done this was an extremely wow. australian conversation you had i'll link to it um, <laughs> but you said you just said you said that was a priority for you, and I think you said it in the context of uh, of the interviewer asking about uh, non-binary zone, the uh, the organization, the advocacy group that you, I believe, co-founded. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I mean, I, I guess the the question uh, I would like to talk about non-binary zone, but the question in relation to Necrobarista is just, you know, are are you like how much of a priority 
was that sort of more interesting version of this, this also, I should say, this was an older interview. This was, you know, over a year ago, I think. So the world was different. And, uh, and it may be that some of the stuff you were thinking might get included in the game didn't. Uh, and that's perfectly fine. But I just thought, I thought that was interesting, right? That like, this is in your head and it's an important thing to you, even if it's not a game about that. I suppose just anyone listening who is a writer, I feel like that's an important thing to to think about and explore is like your priorities as a writer, as an activist can find their way in there without it having to be A, the theme of the game or B, sort of didactic. Yeah, yeah. So this time last year, everything was finalized for Necroprista. Um, okay. And this time two years ago, almost everything was. Um, so nothing much has changed since then. But uh, representation is is an important thing. Um, there's, you know, there's always more I feel like I could have done. Uh, but working with, with what I had, you know, like for, you know, if we do another game, um, one thing I'm, I really want to focus on is um, having sort of indigenous Australian um, acknowledgement representation because uh, that's a, a very important thing um, as the game stands right now you know Melbourne is a very very diverse city and uh, our cast very accurately um, reflects that I don't know if accurately is the right word but we'll, we'll go with it um, <laughs> sure, sure. In, in regards to queerness uh, yeah there's there's in my life um and and the people i spend my time with majority of them are, are you know some flavor of queer and that that's normal and, and cool and good and uh melbourne is uh, a city that uh, there are plenty of suburbs where you walk around and there's, there's pride flags everywhere and, and i think that's lovely I think yeah, that's the that's sort of the tone of it is just the like the the, the queerness that exists in the game goes in the category of of chill vibes, right? Because like Necrobarista to me is a game about heightened emotions sitting alongside chill vibes, right? That's that that perfect slumber party thing of the extreme emotional intensity of a good time ending versus the the beautiful happiness of just being with a friend, right? Or the you know or the idea of a comfort sure, at the yeah. end of life or something like that. So like. All of the queer representation in the game goes goes firmly in the chill vibes camp, which I think is itself really refreshing, right? Because so many stories, especially stories uh, written by straight dudes, put queerness, you know, firmly in the category of of trauma, or they make it the conflict in the story. And I think sometimes that stuff is even well meaning. It's supposed to be like advocacy or, or making you know making someone's plight visible or whatever but it can be exhausting sure, yeah. it's exhausting for me as as someone who's not a member of those marginalized groups so i can only imagine how exhausting it is if you are <laughs> um so so yeah i mean i i think there's something wonderful and 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 quiet and and you know and a little bit radical in the genre about it just being part of life and and everyone sort of like it like it, it's never a plot point it's just a fact about some of the characters yeah the a lot of the characters um, re- reflect my surroundings. So mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a, a line from Hannah where she's talking about playing like upside down double 3D laser chess. <laughs> and that, that, that is literally like just like quoted verbatim from one of my friends. <laughs> uh, it's... I, I wrote what was... Um, I, I had a I had a very very small time frame in which to write the script, 
initially. So I, I just wrote what was familiar. And luckily, that was fresh and exciting to everyone else. Yeah. Well the, well, the dialogue is extremely credible as, you know, people with various familiarities with each other talking to each other. And part of part of that is like, you know, some of it comes through as just we haven't, we haven't said too explicitly when you collect words to, to sort of use later and unlock stuff, you get this wonderful little flavor text that sort of reminds me of old adventure games, you know, when you would when you would get the main character's description of an item, just these kind of wonderful asides that were sometimes some of the best writing in the game. You just get, you know, whose thoughts? The narrator's thoughts? Maddie's thoughts? Somebody's thoughts about the notion of, you know, of, of old people or coffee or or demons or or whatever. Um and and you know that that stuff sort of makes it feel like one of those conversations where you have an extra track running in your head and some of the ways the dialogue lines up in all sorts of ways right in the in in the really specific phrases that that it makes perfect sense you've cribbed from real people you know in the weird star mm-hmm. wars references that just sort of get dropped you get that feeling of those those dialogues running in people's heads and then lining up sometimes because these people are on the same wavelength they're just know each other really well uh there's totally, an intimacy yeah. to it yeah uh, I- intimacy i, I think that's definitely something I focused on. Um, trying not to go into, into spoiler uh, territory. Here, I mean, like completely the... your call, right? If you if you want to <laughs> have a spoiler a, a spoiler section, a spoiler zone, completely up to you. Um, if you don't, that's uh, that's fine. Uh, as well. I, I, I might avoid it, but okay. um, that's fair. The, the relationship between Maddie and Che is platonic, mm-hmm. very very deeply emotionally intimate, um, and and that's satisfying. Now I'm going to do a left turn on you. And, and yeah. rewind to talking about these little blurbs. Um, yes, please. Because uh, the very first prototype, the little moon prototype that I mentioned earlier, uh, it had this wonderful um, design touch where it, it did take a lot of that lineage from from adventure games. And during the visual novel segments, uh, you could mouse around and it, literally every single object in the set had like, an entire story attached to it paragraphs wow. and paragraphs of stuff um it might have been a little bit overboard but it was a prototype <laughs> so it's fine <laughs> right, right, right but that was what drew me to it initially uh just the idea of like this this wonderful hypertext um this, this very very densely layered and textured world where every single like object had this real sense of history and 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 presence to it it was it was very exciting to me, and then we scrapped all of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, not completely, right? I mean, when you're not accessing completely. those side stories, you know, there are the way you access them is through meaningful objects in the space, right? It's but it's not Absolutely, every object yeah. by any stretch. Considering our production constraints, I think it came out pretty much exactly as well as it could have, and I'm I'm pretty happy with that. And I really love, I mean, like, there's a there's a story involving poppy seeds that makes something in the main story mean a little bit more. Just like, I don't know, there are little asides that if you if you know these things that are that are, I guess, you know, canonically true about these characters, these these other events that happened, it just it, it makes the broth richer. You know, it's it's not that you have it's it's not like it's not Final Fantasy 15, I guess is what I'm saying, where you have to you know, consume a side story to even understand what anyone's motivations are or whatever, right? <laughs> the, the main story stands alone, but all of these additional things, um, like, you know, you, you can perfectly understand what's going on without ever clicking those words and getting that little flavor text without ever, you know, uh, reading any of the side stories. Um, I'm actually, I didn't actually ever try not clicking any of the words. And I, 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 
I assume you can still proceed. I, I don't know that for a fact. Absolutely, though. yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, point just being, all of that stuff is there, and it's beautiful, and it's it, it expands the game in terms of both, like, breadth and depth a bit without distracting from the main thrust. You know, it, it again, it, it lets you, you know, uh, enjoy stuff at your own pace. Yeah, and it, it, it follows on from this, this wonderful um, tradition, uh, this interactive fiction tradition of um, having little clickables in entwined stories. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you see it happen in um, Pyre by Supergiant Games. Like, they've got these little tool tips which um, elaborate on, on certain aspects of the storytelling. Um, and, and so that, that at least is like a, a real homage to... Um, the interactive fiction scene, which is uh, a, an incredibly vibrant um, and and very very diverse scene. Yeah, no, it's, it definitely reminded me of Pyre a little bit, and also of uh, I had Laura Mache on not too long ago, and we talked about uh, uh, her Twine game, Swan Hill, uh, where you know the, the hypertext aspect of like clicking an adjective has more to do with like you you have a memory you're remembering it a certain way but but was it really like that you know sort of when you click it you get the more jaundiced or or uh less uh you know you know less rose tinted version of the memory um that's and great like, i should play that it's really well, good great. it's it's one of the better twine games uh that i've ever played in uh, in my humble opinion uh it's really good but it, but this is a like this is more on the pyre side like it is sort of extra context but sometimes they're just like these beautiful aphorisms i like one that sticks out in my mind is you click the word gifted it's like you know some some people who think they're not gifted were just never made aware of their gifts right like they they're these tiny little uh uh side stories full of like pathos and insight and tragedy uh, and it's again, like it's very much the kind of thing you would think, but then not find a place to say. Uh, but it's also the sort of thing, you know, to, to your point, that an adventure game protagonist might say when you when you look at an object, you know, just like throw out this nugget. Um, that that hypertextual or sideways storytelling is something that I think can get lost in a very linear narrative. So that this game finds a place for that stuff is to me really beautiful. Yeah, totally. It's I, I'm. I'm really glad we haven't. I think the game would be worse off if we if we didn't. So I, I let me let me take let me take a we've taken three left turns. So we almost turned around at this point, maybe. Um, but I um, <laughs> do you want to talk a little bit about non-binary zone? Because it's um I, I I looked at I looked into the the sort of advocacy work that that it does uh, that you do. I, I I think still with it. You're you're a founder, but you don't run it, right? Um, yeah, do you want to just talk a little bit about like, yeah yeah yeah? I haven't had a lot of involvement in the past year and a half like I'm, I'm ostensibly still in a leadership position but it kind of runs itself um i think my value to that project is i was able to use my platform to empower um people with less of a following perhaps and mm-hmm. we were able to uh make some concrete changes locally um for things like game events um, to make them just a bit more inclusive to help them um, achieve the goals that they and 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 achieve the goals that they're going for in regards to inclusivity but also um, sort of help them be aware of their blind spots mm-hmm. um, but yeah it's <laughs> I I don't have a lot to say about it because um, That's fair. Yeah. I just haven't really been involved for a while. Okay. Yeah. yeah I've, I mean, been, I've been busy with Necrobrista. 
perfectly fair perfectly fair yeah yeah i mean i I wanted to include a shout out but if you if you feel like you know it's it's not your involvement i'm happy to even cut this part out um i just think no stress cool cool you know i think it's a cool thing to to call out um obviously because representation is important obviously because you know advocating for people who are not getting advocated for in sort of the 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 regular uh habitual you know mainstream workings of an industry is extremely important it's it's also important i think it's so important that you said you know help people who have a lower profile than you do you know there there are unfortunately a fair number of people who sort of pull up the ladder after them right like i I can't remember who originally yes. said it, but like when, when someone goes through something difficult or, or painful, there are basically two reactions. There's, I went through it, so everyone else should have to as well. It's like a like a hazing ritual, toughen up. And then there are people who say, well, I went through this, so no one else ever should have to. <laughs> um, I should be the last one who has to go through it. Uh, Absolutely, so, yeah. yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm very, very passionate about... Um, I, I'm, I'm very passionate about that because I've had, you know particular kinds of experiences in, in in games for example where um i've you know been been treated in, in, in a predatory manner and mm. I'm, I'm i'm very invested in in making sure that you know, other other young writers um other marginalized creators uh don't get get pulled into that sort of situation yeah yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. That's really important, and ugh, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I don't know what to say other than I'm, I'm sorry that happened, and I, I know that I try to use whatever you know medium-sized platform I have to to get the word out about that stuff, and 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 try to get move the conversation toward that not being acceptable, right? Because I mean, that's yeah, the I, thing. I, yeah, I, I think things are getting better, just slowly, but um, I'm. I'm encouraged by just the the general movements of things. I think the culture is changing. Yeah, I think we're, I think you do see a backlash, obviously, and you just see a lot of people entrenched who either think they shouldn't have to think about changing or or don't think they're part of the problem and are offended that you might suggest otherwise or whatever. But I think you're also seeing a lot of people sort of waking up, growing up, you know, being being ready to make the world a better place, uh, which is good. You know, hilariously, the, the the biggest backlash I've ever gotten on on this wonderful site twitter.com uh, was not you know <laughs> me posting not me posting about games or, or posting about queerness or representation or harassment it was me making fun of the hero's journey really and I got hundreds of of furious tweets people looking into my past getting like being like oh your work sucks it was absolutely hilarious what the because hell was, was that like, it was just a, a throwaway like a throwaway post about about the hero's journey being being fake garbage and like i, I hit the I hit the intersection of like star wars and marvel twitter and they just hated me oh for it. that's what that was okay and maybe you might have gotten some rick and morty fans too right because like uh, uh dan, oh, probably yeah. dan Harmon uses like his like story circle thing is very much based on joseph campbell so yeah you probably mm, you probably hit that yeah. sweet spot um, jeez. I mean, it's I fi- I find uh the hero's journey really interesting because well I don't find the hero's journey interesting I find the dialogue around the hero's journey interesting mm-hmm. because it's yeah. the er example of something that internet reason men I suppose would be the category have strong opinions <laughs> about despite absolutely one hundred percent not having read the book 
right? Like, and it, they oh, betray themselves sure. about it immediately. And like, and they also, you know, it's, it's the same way that people love to talk about like Western culture, but then don't like read the Western canon. Cause if they did, they would find that it's not as homogenous and fashy as they seem to think it is, right? Like it's, it's, it's that perfect <laughs> thing that makes Twitter a hellscape sometimes where people have a passionate opinion about something that they can't even be bothered to read the wiki article on, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's so strange. It's so strange. Um, I'm totally, sorry, you got to yeah. pile on. That's that's so bizarre, though, that that's what did it. <laughs> like, Honestly, like, it, it was so unexpected. Um, and I was so, I, I wasn't invested at all in this, you know, this throwaway post that it was just kind of hilarious to me. I've had very few Twitter pylons, but they they have always been about the weirdest shit imaginable. <laughs> um, I, I, there was like, there were, there were three people coming to me at once about Rosé one time. Like, I, like, <laughs> like that my, my masculinity was, was forfeit because, because of the, the notion that, that Rosé might be something I might drink. Um, and these, oh, that's, yeah, that's wild. It was very weird. It was very weird. There, it's I, not I even think the most feminine of the wines. No, not even close. Right. <laughs> I mean, like get your, get your feminine wine game on bros. I, I guess just like there is a certain, there's like, there is this, um, there, there, there's just a, there's a lot of fear in the world right now, you know, and I'm not, this is not to excuse shitty Twitter behavior by any stretch of the imagination. It's just to try and understand it a little, right? I think people who want to police masculinity, you know, in the Rosé example are just absolutely terrified of their masculinity being questioned because it's like, it's the only thing they feel like they have. And, you know, usually that means they don't have it as solidly as they think they do. Um, but I don't know. It's just, it's this weird lashing out. I think the hero's journey thing is very similar. They've picked a corner and they think that Joseph Campbell is what gives that corner prestige and therefore they're going to defend it, you know, to the death. Um, Yeah. And it's, I think that, you know, pushes you into a broader conversation about like the, the cultural conception that a single type of storytelling structure is the only valid one. Um, And, and that's been, Something I've I've noticed particularly in regards to reception of um, like media from Australia, New Zealand, that's hmm. structured just a little bit differently to your standard American media, um, and it gets kind of walloped in the American media because of that. Um, I recently watched an Australian film called The Dressmaker. Uh, I don't know if you've you've seen it. I haven't. I haven't. Okay, so it's this, um, it was advertised as a chick flick, which I think was e- either genius or, or a, just a horrible idea. But it's, it's, it's a Western <laughs> set in, in, in the 50s in a, in a small Australian outback town, um, following this, this, this woman who returns to her hometown after 20 years uh, because uh, she needs to uncover the truth behind a traumatic childhood memory, and that is the memory of her killing someone as a child. Um, but, but she can't, she can't remember it. She's just been told that she killed someone. Um, and it's, it's absolutely brilliant. It's the most Australian film I've ever watched. Uh, but it's, it's incredibly dark. Like it's, it's, it's a very, very grim movie. It's got, it's got humor in it um, because that's how Australians deal with trauma. We joke about it to distract ourselves um but sure. the the u.s critical media were like oh yeah this is a comedy it's like were we watching the same film you absolute mm. fools so they were judging and, it on a completely like, they were not judging it on its own on its own terms they were they were they, they, they were judging it. On, a, on a surface level interpretation um yeah and and it's 
they they were like, oh, it's it's poorly paced. It's it's got too many jokes, but it's actually just a, a culturally authentic piece of media. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is, I mean, I, I think a lot about the the curse of the of the critic, of of like the like I you know I I write and talk about games and uh, a lot, but I'm not in the position where I'm like a staff writer at Kotaku and I'm supposed to have an opinion on every game that comes out, and you know, nor am I you know like a film critic who's supposed to you know just somehow know everything about all cinema like like part of it is just the internet uh-huh. thing where we're all brands and we're not supposed to admit we don't know things because like you the, the the reception is predicated on the idea that this is not a kind of cinema the person watching hasn't seen before if they're an american or whatever it's it's that it's 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 not a, an authentically australian film it's a broken american film <laughs> you know what i mean exactly the, That's that exactly lack of curiosity it. yeah yep and it absolutely shits me to tears um, <laughs> I, I hate it too i hate it too i mean it's the, it, it was really funny actually as like because i you know I, I like korean cinema a fair bit and like parasite broke out in the u.s last year and everybody was like it's so wild the way it like switches genres part way through and the way it like you know it blends all these different tones i'm like i mean yeah that's, that's a really good thing about it there's there's a whole cinematic tradition where that's a normal thing like like go enjoy it Absolutely, right like and yeah. this is not a hipster thing like i liked it before it was cool it was just like yes welcome to the conversation like like this is great there's all kinds of things you can enjoy now it's not a unique thing about this one you know like just because it's been blessed and you're allowed to like it <laughs> doesn't mean that this is the only one that counts yeah ap- ap- apologies to americans at large but american critical literacy is uh <laughs> killing storytelling <laughs> mm, i mean I, I as an american i'm i'm not sure i disagree <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, part of it just comes down to um, rigid structuralism, not to, not to over-intellectualize it, because I think it's a lot more knee-jerk than that, but the idea that Joseph Campbell or whatever is not a way of analyzing stories, but it's a, an instruction manual, right? That's the part that's poison. The idea that, or, or, or worse yeah. yet, a rubric, right? Like, you can grade a story on how well it adheres to this thing is just a ludicrous way to, to, to like, you're, you're thinking about, like, every game you play, every book you read, every movie you watch, start at a perfect 10 and then you just shave off points for every every way that it deviates from the platonic ideal or whatever it's just like besides I, i'm dying yeah. inside as you're saying this like it's <laughs> it's it's so true <laughs> i mean it's besides being unfair to the media and and besides the, the main reason i don't like it is it produces really boring writing right like this is why most reviews are, are, are you know that i that i read are not I'm not going to name names, but like a lot, a lot, any given game that comes out, especially big AAA games, just produce the worst writing, <laughs> of, you know, just like completely generic copy paste kind of stuff. But it's also just a really joyless way to engage with media. You know what I mean? Like, like isn't Absolutely. that curiosity Absolutely. about like, oh, this is a different way of telling a story? Isn't that the whole point? Like, isn't that what you should be getting out of everything? Yeah, like critics, I'm begging you, like, <laughs> it, don't 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 take things at, at surface value, like. Just think about why a thing might be the way it is instead yeah. of just assuming that because you don't recognize it, that it's bad. There's a, there's a food critic uh, that I really love uh, named Jonathan Gold. Um, and and he, he would always say the only question a critic should ask is why, right? Like the, the question isn't how much is it like <laughs> the fucking hero's journey or whatever. The question is why did the person who made, who made this make it this way, right? And I would it- love to see food reviews in... The, the structure of the hero's journey. I would, <laughs> I would actually love to see that. Okay, now that I'm saying it, yeah, like, well, that's the other thing, right? Like, the other thing that I think um, a lot of critics aren't literate in is that, like, criticism as its own intellectual pursuit was all about, like, applying framework X to 
work of art why right so it's like to apply the hero's journey to a taco is actually a really interesting exercise right? <laughs> <laughs> or you know i'm going to do a i'm going to do a marxist reading of mario brothers 2 or whatever right like like it it could it could be a good Hell fit yeah, or a bad absolutely. fit right but but like that's what's interesting the idea that there is a way to read things a way of things uh, a thing should be and that you're just like evaluating it like it's it just produces a kind of criticism that like the only thing it can do is reassure people that what they already like is very good and smart and they're very good big boys for liking it you know like there's no there's no (laughs) again the lack of curiosity is what drives me crazy yeah and and you know disclaimer you know this is all my my own opinion (laughs) and it does not represent that of my studio or my colleagues no, 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 you, you and I have just found a shared pet peeve. So we're, so we're, uh, <laughs> cathartically, uh, uh, dunking on a certain kind of, and, and again, we're not going after anyone specific. This is just like a tendency exactly. in the yeah. way people receive media. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, it's been a, a little frustrating to see people being like, you know, necrobristas characters aren't realistic. It's like, no, no, no. Th- th- these are based off of, uh, like every person I know, like the, the, them, them joking around all the time. We're depressed millennials. We have nothing else to do. <laughs> that explicitly comes up in the text. Like, even though we're we're ostensibly a bit in the future, I, I believe the the sort of boomer it's, millennial. It's, it's it's not. It's not in the future. Okay. Okay. That's... <laughs> okay. So this is another bit of like cross cultural communication where the the wires get crossed. Um. So it says thirty forty six in the intro or whatever. That's actually the postcode or what you <laughs> might know as a zip code. Yep, that's um, exactly where I got I got screwed up. That's what happened. Yep. Yeah, it's it's not just you. I, there've been a lot of people who've uh, had that response and it was actually it was really surprising to me because it t- to me it's just like the most common thing. It's on every bit of mail. It's on, you know, every address here. And and yet even some Australians were like mm. Yes, this game is definitely set a thousand years in the future. <laughs> I mean, it tells you so. Um, and I mean, it's, you know, it, I, I guess to me, it didn't seem it didn't seem to violate the text because like, you know, the time time gets a little bit convoluted in in, in Lordran and or the terminal. Right. Like like how long people have been around has a little bit of uh, of latitude. Uh, oh, yeah. Like the, yeah. The, the mental gymnastics are hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> No, I had a whole elaborate headcanon to explain it to myself. I, I, <laughs> no, and you're, and you're right. It is just a cultural thing. Because like, if it had been five digits, I would have read it as a you know a, a postal code because that's what they are in the U.S. And I'm sure you know uh, British folks are expecting letters in there probably. Right? Like it's it's. Oh yeah, that that that's wild. Like imagine having letters in your postcodes. That's ridiculous. Absurd. Absurd. <laughs> <laughs> and for such a small geographic area, it's objectively not necessary. Right? Like anyway. Um, I mean, I don't know. We, we get by with five digits. I guess five digits plus a sometimes four, you know, uh, a bonus DLC zip code in the U.S. And, you know, I just, I, like Australia, the U.S. is geographically huge, you know? Yeah, you, a lot more people there. Yeah, true, true. Um, yeah, <laughs> true, know, true, true. You, you drive for eight hours in, 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 in the U.S., you cross like three states, you pass like a hundred different towns. Um, whereas in Australia, you pass like maybe three towns. Sure, sure. Yeah, more like again, see like see a lot of dead kangaroos. <laughs> For replace kangaroo with moose, and again, if anybody in North America has messed around in Canada, you'll be a little bit familiar. But you know, <laughs> um, you're right. The U.S. is is again is is very dense with with small towns and tourist traps and all that kind of stuff. It's a very it's a very different experience of traveling. Like, I don't think like I think people in the U.S. who've who've driven from you know New York to Miami or whatever think they know what it's like to drive through nothing, but they don't really <laughs> like. 
or, or maybe a better example is like Route 66. You know, like there's because a lot of those towns are kind of dead. Like it was a it was a big. It was a you know it was rest stops where you had to stop if you were traveling cross country and then the superhighways came along and you could really just keep driving if you want to, uh, and so there's a lot of like husks but it's still not, you know like outback it's still not it's still not tundra absolutely yeah. Not, yeah. yeah my my family um, lives in uh, San Luis Obispo County in California, oh, cool. um, and I've spent like half my life in in California so like I'm very familiar with like the Central Valley and uh just th- those those long long drives down 101 <sighs> you know, driving past fresno and <laughs> yeah, how it yeah. smells like cow <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah no, you totally get that here california is the um the, the somewhat exception to what you're talking about are traversing three states because if you're going you know north south you could drive eight nine hours and still be in california but you've still kind of you've still kind of gone through two or three states (laughs) you know even though they're you know they're they're they have the same number of uh senators there there's some different cultures in northern california versus southern california and all that so oh so yeah 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 well and that's the thing right like i'm what what i part of the cultural tourism that i really enjoyed about necrobarista i mean i enjoyed a lot of things about it to be clear but getting that like that sense of melbourne-ness because i've never been to melbourne um getting the sense of like you know like to me some of it just reads as extremely australian the fact that ned kelly is in the game that's not really a spoiler i don't think um no 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 it's 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 on the steam page it's it's fine (laughs) sure okay fair enough yeah yeah. if it's on the steam page it's not a spoiler that's a good rule that i still think some people might not agree with based on some of the twitter responses i get sometimes (laughs) but but you know like some of it is just is just tremendously australian but a lot of it is tremendously melbourne (laughs) like it like the sense of place is very very specific right and like an outsider can't speak to the authenticity in a certain sense but they can speak to like the verisimilitude they can speak to like how real and lived in it feels and for me the answer was very very totally yeah and i i've spent pretty decent amount of time in melbourne um so i I felt qualified to even as a a relative outsider capture the the culture sure (laughs) you're sure as a as a as a um as a as a hater as as someone from adelaide right as someone on the other side of a rivalry i i think the really the, the thing that encapsulates australian coffee culture as a whole is that in in the late 2000s um starbucks entered the market and mm. immediately just completely failed. Like, there was no interest <laughs> in Starbucks at all. The only and... other country I know of where that happened was Colombia, where, you know, they have, like, you know, they have Juan Valdez and whatever. Like, I, there may be a mm. Starbucks at the Bogota airport, but that's it. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, there's there's a few Starbuckses around Melbourne, but, like, they are vastly outnumbered by, like, your corner coffee shop, of which ugh. there are millions. Does my and they're wonderful. They're, they're, they're all, like completely unique they're, they're all serving you know avocado and toast in a completely unique way it's, it's <laughs> sure. beautiful yeah that is beautiful but but it is beautiful right i mean like that's the thing like i how different would necrobarista be if the terminal were a chain <laughs> you know what i mean like if there were if there were identical coffee shops just even if you never saw any of the others just like how different would the tone be if that were the idea that like the dead know to come to this place where they always get their overpriced macchiato at precisely the same temperature. <laughs> like the idea of of bespokeness and hominess and uh, and artisanal uh, uh, coffee making is like is so like it's a celebration of of what's good about knowing people and being alive. And I feel like the the specificity uh, and the the one offness of the terminal is a really important part of that. Damn, you're saying some really smart shit. I should write this down. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I think if, if the terminal were a chain, there would be a lot, like even more jokes about capitalism. Oh, for sure. And there are already quite a few. <laughs> I laughed out loud at you're a bad comrade, Keyshawn. That was a that was a line that I enjoyed very much. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, yeah, no, that's true. There's, I mean, it, it's not a game about. I mean, it is it is on a, like a thematic level a bit of a critique of capitalism because it's you know it talks about debt and how it limits you and arbitrary rules and uh, and and how systems that consider themselves impartial are are their own kind of cruel even if they're not malicious and like all that kind of stuff. Mm. But yes, to your point, like it's not a um it's not like a giant burlesque about coffee chains. It's it's very much about small businesses and and uh, and making it in the world and and what spaces mean to people. It's uh, it's a really really thematically rich game uh over over and above having the uh the anxieties about capitalism that anyone paying attention has right now yeah for sure cool well i know it is very late where you're at so do you need to get going i'm i'm happy to talk for for a while longer i've had a cup of tea i'm i'm absolutely chill okay lovely um i'm having some cold brew that i uh that i cold brewed myself so i'm good as well can we talk a little bit about your previous work because you've um yeah, if, if I'm yeah. if I'm not mistaken, you were the the first person to touch the narrative aspects of Starbound, like like period, way back in the day. Um, is that? I I was technically the second, but the okay. first guy kind of just didn't do anything and disappeared. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say I was the first. <laughs> you'll take it. You'll take it. Okay. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Like, what did that involve? Was that like figuring out what the different you know cultures represented in the game were? Like, like what did what did the narrative design of Starbound look like? Sort of day one or or day two? Um, it was a gigantic lore bible, and mm. uh, that was like precisely the wrong approach to take uh, <laughs> in hindsight. But that it was like it was the first time I'd done any game writing, so sure, I'm I'm not gonna beat myself up about like just doing it completely wrong. Um, I don't want you to self-flagellate, but no, why no, no. why was it the wrong approach? That's the interesting question to me. Because that's not none of that's making its way into the game. Sure, 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 sure. Like like Necrobrista <laughs> does not have a law bible. Um, mm. It's something that simply was not a priority. Uh, obviously, like Starbound was a very different game, um, but the, the the ways that storytelling was done in that game when it was effective was through NPC interactions, through environmental storytelling. Um, like my favorite bit of writing for I did for the game was actually outside of the game as part of a uh, transmedia marketing promotion where I made a, a, a twine story that was like this, this sort of diegetic, uh, this, this log from uh, a ship that had, you know, fr- from a black box or whatever. Uh, that had been like infested by these fungus monsters. <laughs> that's great, but but I see what you mean though, because that's that's touchable. That's a story. That's not some substructure of of lore and rules that that a player's never going to actually like see. Yeah, so I, I think that the really important thing is, and and like at, at this point, I assume all of my work's been stripped out because it's it's been over half a decade since I worked on the game um but the the approach of of drawing a box and then working within that box um really limits your creative uh possibilities later on whereas 
with my work on, on Necrobrista, for example, I tried to leave it as open-ended as possible. Like, there's there's a bunch of, of story hooks that we can use later on if we want to. Um, like, uh, Che's romantic encounter with, uh, you know, with, with a demon. Like, it, it's it's vaguely talked about. There's no specific stuff. Um, could could revisit that. You know, Che was a, a gold miner. Like. There, 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 there's all these things that <laughs> what i really wanted was like fanfic <laughs> so yeah, you know you gotta leave that's it how you know you succeeded for, for sure yeah absolutely um, absolutely you know and there's so much room TV for that with like page. you know what exactly is um what exactly is ned and and che's relationship right like like there's there's a lot of room there like the not that the game is vague about it right their dynamic is very clear but what exactly mm. they've been through together there's a lot that is not explicitly stated Exactly, and and I wanted to leave that very open ended um, and open to interpretation, uh, because I think that's just the most interesting way to do it. No, absolutely. There's um, I talked to to Brendan Chung a little while ago, and I've mentioned I've mentioned this to a few other guests on the show just because I find it so um, so so kind of powerful. But 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 he said that he he never as a creator uh will jump into a conversation you know that's like fanfic or speculation and say, well, I as the creator say this right like actually what actually happened is x y or z because like number one your answer may be less interesting than some of the ones in people's heads but more importantly you're foreclosing on like a kind of engagement that you should be working really hard to foster in a certain sense right like that kind of that speculation and people taking ownership of the story and the characters like to a certain degree that's 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 what you get up in the morning for you know yeah that that's a pretty smart way of approaching it um (laughs) it's (laughs) It, it, it's it's certainly interesting like this is the first time in, in a very long time that i've been like seeing fan art of of the stuff i've been working on and that's that's really 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 cool that's so cool um you know that there's all this fan art of of, of ashley like just being an absolute goblin and that <laughs> makes me really really happy because that's how i you know envisioned her in my head um you know she's you know a goblin on on screen in the game but you know in this fan art you know she's just there's always like some motion blur (laughs) that that's beautiful to me you can never you you always see her out of the corner of your eye kind of thing exactly exactly (laughs) That's (laughs) that's incredible that's incredible um I do want to ask one thing though about the idea of there being no lore bible for necrobarista so so like I guess when I I was wondering when I was playing how many answers to questions that go unanswered in the text you you or the team have you know as far as like what exactly the council does and what the rules are and what kinds of magic are, are legal or illegal you're sort of saying that you took those you took those questions as they came like I assume you went you took a pass to make sure you weren't like contradicting yourself in any kind of you know immersion breaking mm-hmm. way or whatever yeah. but but you never sat down and like you know wrote out a whole substructure of how the council works that wasn't going to come up in the game no never um the, so, so we we hashed out the the rules around death we hashed out um you know ned's role and that was pretty much it like necrobrista has very little like setting based exposition in, in in the main script and that was a very intentional decision sure sure yeah bo- both because 
this is this is me as a player talking. I don't know that this is what you were thinking, right? But like both because that creates that ambiguous space that I feel like if you're going to have an intellectually honest conversation about death, kind of has to be there, and also because those rules are not what the story is about. Absolutely, like it's it's hundred percent about the characters, not about the rules, not about the 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 setting. It's it's about these these people who are hurting and who are hurting each other, um, and just trying to make their way out of it. I guess I guess I want to cycle back to <laughs> to what degree do you think this is a game about ca- uh, capitalism, right? Because it, it wasn't because the characters were the focus. It wasn't the main thing in my head while I was playing, but it was definitely in the back of my head. And it's sort of, you know, again, it's it's even more impossible for it not to be in 2020 than it would have been in 2019 because the world, <laughs> the world I, I think it's fair to say, is having a bit of a moment where things, you know, we're not going to get back the world we had. We could get a better one or a worse one. That's up to us to a certain degree, but we're not going backward, right? So like, you know, again, like debt is a theme and obligation is a theme and ownership is a theme. Like, was that sort of part of what made the idea interesting to you? Or is that something that just sort of emerged as you were writing about, you know, people and what people have to deal with? I, th- I think it was a, a natural thing that sort of emerged. Um, I don't recall, like, really strongly considering the capitalism angle, but um, it I, I, I guess it is kind of obvious once you... I, I'm reading all the critiques and they're like, wow, this is a game about capitalism. I'm like, all right, cool. That's good to hear. I'm fine with that. And, you know, like, obviously Ashley makes a few cracks about uh, about communism. Um, you know, she's Which a, also plays really well into the generational dynamic. You know, that like the, young, the younger people are casually more radical than the older people they hang out with or whatever which is certainly a dynamic i i've experienced as as someone older than the youth you know absolutely yeah like you know like the the um the side text says you know ashley's a she's a real party girl yeah (laughs) i love that yeah yeah I'm really, thank you for clearing up the year thing, because I, I, I it's funny, I've, I've, <laughs> I have been, since you said that, like, undoing all of the tangled knots that I'd come up with in my head to justify <laughs> I, to myself why why baby boomers are on the table if it's, if, if we're in the, uh, the, the 30-something century. Um, that's, yeah, hmm. maybe I should do a PSA on the Twitter account or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, I mean, it really, like, the only indication you get is, I mean, like, I guess Ashley's arm could look plausibly futuristic to somebody. And, yeah, and, and the robots, I guess. Yeah, yeah, but the, but the robots are very homespun, you know. Um, I, guess, I guess the other thing is the robots, to me, were a little bit of an echo of, of Nier Automata. Uh, there is this kind oh, of like, absolutely. You know, like, yeah. like I, I will fully cop to that. We just took that, <laughs> that the, the pod conversations, uh, we, we took the pod conversations from Nier Automata, and then we, we put them in our game. And that's what, that's what we did. Yeah, no, and I mean, and it works really well, and it's a it's a device very much worth stealing. The Greek chorus of boxy robots, but you know, absolutely some, somewhere yes. in my head that reinforced that it was the future. Not even because they're especially futuristic robots, but just because like you know, Near Automata takes place what like eleven thousand years in the future or something. So it, it casually like that, yeah. reinforced in my head that we were we were later on or something. Yeah, so like an interesting thing about those those conversations is that they're actually. Um, almost a bit of an afterthought they were written mm. uh, over a year after the rest of the script was finished um as sort of we we were play testing the game and some players with maybe less strict attention spans were getting a little bit lost um mm. and so i was like hmm, how can we solve this problem and the answer was a greek chorus of 
talking robots made of trash. I mean, I mean, come to think of it, the fact that they are made of trash and like they talk about like what the, what they're made of and their their previous experiences and stuff, maybe maybe was part of what reinforced it. Like you may have accidentally reinforced the, the this being a game about capitalism. Read with the robots <laughs> made of trash, um, at least a little. But I think it also does serve that clear function, right? Like it, um, it's you know, it it gives you even more space in between those really emotionally fraught episodes, right? Like you get, you get a summation and then you get to walk around and then you get to, you know, pursue side stuff as you, as you wish. And then you get to move on. Um, It's, it's beautiful that it turned out that way because our idea was, wouldn't it be funny if there was a robot made of, made of a goon box. And (laughs) so I had to Google goon. I mean, like I, that's, that's, yeah. So so goon is boxed wine. Um, It's, it's the, local nomenclature for, for boxed wine um did, did you come across the australian ritual of goon of fortune <laughs> no no i did not okay so this is a game played by young very bored adults um it, it's 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 played at parties uh but i have to go into a little little extra cultural context um in australia we we often um will line dry our clothes uh, because it's it's hot as hell out there so they dry instantly mm. um but we have these very particular these these uniquely designed um rotating multi-veined clothes hangers um that sort of uh they 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 collapse and they they fold up and there's 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 one in basically every backyard it's called a hills hoist um but the important thing is that it spins and uh, goon of Fortune involves attaching a, a bag of goon to one of these uh, with with clothespins and just spinning it, and whoever <laughs> it lands on has to drink, and that's the whole game. But it's it's a cultural institution, and it's a very efficient way to get drunk. <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't the wine get really hot really fast? Was well, you that... play it at nine. Oh, okay, okay, that's okay. Okay, that's I, that. My so my research did not go deep enough to catch that, but but like that's <laughs> this is a, this is such a good example of like um because like that's something Ashley might not know yet or something right like the the idea of like this cultural symbol that's instantly oh yeah like this is fully player. like yeah. this is Maddie's goon totally 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 and and Ashley just found the box and she's like yeah I'm gonna use this this is a good shape yeah I'm gonna. <laughs> exactly no that's amazing that's amazing well and it and again it's it's the it's a perfect example of something that a, a lesser game if i may say might would would take time to point out or footnote or something but that this just kind of lets it pass and if, if if this piques your cultural curiosity then uh then then good for you but it's just it's it's again it's that sense of place you know yeah we we, we really made this game for australian players um and you know the vast overwhelming majority of feedback we've gotten from Australian players is that they love it. So that's, that's really gratifying. Yeah. Yeah. No. And again, it is incredibly specifically Australian was, was part of the choice and this, this choice might predate your involvement. So if you, if you don't know or can't speak on it all good, but when you did, when the choice was made to make it extremely Australian, was that kind of part and parcel to the choice of making it anime, which is, you know, obviously a cultural export from a specific place. I, I hope I don't have to say, but is also at this point, weirdly universal, you know, it's like, it's a visual language. Everyone understands, right? Like it doesn't to my eye anyway, the, like the visual style is not specifically Australian. It's, it's, you know, it's the art direction is, but the, the language is more anime. Yeah, yeah. I I wasn't around specifically for when the um, art style was nailed down. 
but I, I think definitely the idea of having something anime but also like very Australian was mm-hmm. definitely important to the team. I mean, it makes sense, you know. Like, anime is always a little bit of a melting pot under the under the simplest of circumstances. Um, and I know there there is also a you know a a, a a substantial amount of cultural exchange between Australia and Japan. So absolutely, you know. yeah. We we've got this. Like, uh, I, I can sing the praises of the of the art style without you know feeling self conscious because I didn't even touch it. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. But you know, our art style is is. There's never been like a 3D anime game that's looked quite like this, and we we've we spent so many years like working on our rendering tech technology, our shaders, uh, to make something really unique that looks good from every angle, um, and uh, I'm so thrilled that we were able to to pull that off after like so much hard work. I mean, I wanted to mostly ask about the the storytelling stuff because obviously that was that was your lane, but. You know, if I if I could ask about the tech really quickly, I mean, like, it, you know, you said you accidentally made a Telltale game, which I think is is somewhat true, and I think it's it's kind of a beautiful <laughs> uh, uh, space to occupy. It, it sort of sounds like you've also made a, a, a modern, in some ways, better version of the Telltale tool, right? Like, like it, it sounds to me like that you you spent a, a fair amount of time, you the team, broadly developing something that then would allow you to tell all sorts of different stories in sort of a, a visually arresting style. Whereas, you know, the Telltale tool kind of, like, I, I love The Walking Dead Season 1, and, and I, I actually love a, a bunch of Telltale games. But the tools started aging very quickly. <laughs> it seems to me this is maybe a little bit more robust because you've been so thoughtful about where the money goes and it's more focused on posing and 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 it's more stylized and all of that. Like, like have you also maybe accidentally made a, a platform <laughs> or an engine? Uh, possibly. Like, that. that is one direction we could go in. Um, personally, I'm hoping we can do something a bit more ambitious for our next game if, if we choose to make another game. Um, yeah, the... The, the the tech like like the game's built on top of Unity, but we have so much custom tooling. Uh, like the the editor is just a just a, a a mess of all these these wonderful little little tools. Um, and but it, it's it's very exciting. For example, that we're able to build that tooling to empower our cinematographer, um, who. He just worked his way through the entire game and just just took every shot and and made it just that just that bit better. Um, like each, each shot had at least four or five people work on it, hmm. and that attention to detail, like I think, is what really sets sets us apart. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, and again, folks, folks who heard the NeoCab episode or who played NeoCab will appreciate. Like, there's there's a there's a much there's an equal attention to detail. In uh, in the in the two games, in a certain sense, there's an equal att- uh, attention to to cinematographic uh, or cine- cinematic language. Cinematographic. What the hell am I talking about? To cinematic language. <laughs> but whereas NeoCab uses a lot of procedural stuff, you know, to to animate a, a huge number of conversations, there's there's a bit more like shot variety in Necrobarista because every every you can tell everything got individual attention, <laughs> and that's something that I think oh, is absolutely. only possible in yeah. a shorter narrative. But whew, it really shows. Yeah, people are like you know this game could have been longer, and I'm like, no, <laughs> it would have it would have cost a lot more money to be to be a longer game. It could have been um, longer and never been released. Sure, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. I mean, I I, I do think the two um, 
the two the two games are an interesting contrast. Sorry to keep talking about this game you haven't played, but I think for for listeners it is a really interesting uh, contrast because people who don't understand like the pipeline difference between something where every shot or every line of dialogue gets individual attention versus something that uses some kind of procedural technology, you know, a Naughty Dog game versus uh, versus a Bioware game or something, right? Uh, this is a really good example of the contrast and like the the advantages of each approach and how you are definitely going to get a different result uh, depending on which approach you take. And I, I think I think your the team chose such a such a like wildly ambitious but ultimately incredibly successful one for necrobarista yeah i mean speaking from the perspective of someone who likes making and and releasing games uh (laughs) definitely the procedural approach is a lot smarter (laughs) sure sure and uh, i think uh, uh, unless we make something exactly the same like we're definitely going to try and move away from that uh, I, was, I was chatting with our lead artist today and she's like I never want to make a b- bespoke animation again <laughs> uh, I, I, like, I, I fully empathize with that and I'm, I'm very sorry that I made you do so many <laughs> I mean it's so effective though you know when, when there's a specific emotion you've never seen before I mean it's, it's incredible oh it turned but... out great like I'm, we're, we're all very happy with the game how the game turned out that is an interesting thought too, though. That you know, I was I was immediately thinking, okay, and then how does the scale? You've now built a tool where you can you can go full Telltale and make and make a bunch of games on basically the same tech, which is of course to a certain degree where Telltale went wrong or where the management went wrong was like let's just churn these out now that we've got a winning formula, right? Whereas of course what's interesting is doing something different with that leverage. So like most of the things that make Necrobarista uh, unique don't scale, right? Like bespoke animations by their very nature are bespoke. You can't really, you know, copy paste those into something else. It's it's uh, it's an extremely high effort way to make a game and to tell this story, I suppose is what I'm saying. Um, and it shows Absolutely, and it's beautiful. Yeah. You have bumped the lamp, uh, if, if if I may use that phrase. Um, if that's not, sorry if that's obscure, but like there's there's that scene in Who Framed Roger Rabbit <laughs> where, uh, where there's a, you know, there's people and there's Roger Rabbit on screen and that's hard enough to animate anyway, but there's this lamp spinning around, so the lighting is constantly changing. Um, so uh, I guess yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Just for anybody who doesn't, um, I figured you probably did, but I, I realized uh, I, I didn't want to be obscure to uh, to uh, the listening public. But yeah, like you have bumped the lamp <laughs> on this uh, on this game to a to a stunning degree. Yeah, I feel bad for anyone who's making a visual novel and gets asked like, "Oh, why isn't it in full 3D?" <laughs> That's because it costs a lot of money yeah. and takes many years to complete. There is a certain this goes back to the media literacy conversation a little bit, but there is a certain kind of player that their reaction isn't going to be, "Wow, what a what a beautiful, unique uh, you know, immaculately crafted piece of art. The reaction is going to be, well, why can't every visual novel be like this? This is this is a bit better, you know. And that's that's got to be a little frustrating. Yeah, it's. I, I don't expect, and like I, I'd love to be proven wrong here, but I don't expect like a lot of visual novels to follow suit. It's yeah, it's a hell of a thing to try and copycat. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see more like this, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it's it's very punishing to make a game like this. No, and I think, yeah, you've, you've pretty explicitly said, and I think other members of the team have as well, that you probably, you yourselves probably won't do it again, <laughs> which uh, which is perfectly, perfectly fair. I mean, you know, there's a reason that the, uh, the, as you've said, the paper doll style of visual novel persists, and it's not that it's the most effective form of storytelling, it's that it's quick to make, you know, so if, if you're... Uh, it's so cheap, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, just super efficient, um, and I, I'm like full respect to anyone putting a game together like that it's 
I, I've I've bought games like that before. It's still hard. Making games is 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 hard no matter what you're doing. <laughs> Easy mode is already quite difficult. Yes, very very true. I guess that's the point I wanted to come around to. Right? It's like when you when. I guess I, I'm just trying to anticipate bad reads. Does that make sense? Like, I, I don't want someone to see this and no, say, well, totally. this is how yeah. all visual novels should be now. Or like, oh, this is so much better than those those piddly paper doll visual novels or something like that. Right? Like, it, like I, I think um, we as the internet are, are kind of bad at appreciating what is unique or beautiful about something without having to make it again, <laughs> getting into a corner and, and shitting on everything else, which is not really the most effective or meaningful or joyful way to experience art, I think. Yeah, like... I'm terrible to myself, and you know I, I've read most of the negative reviews for Necrobrista, and oh, they're god. all like, eh, "It's too millennial" or whatever. Oh and god! Like, <laughs> I, I I find it so hard to care about those reviews. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, when when other members of the team are getting insulted, uh, then I'm I'm a bit more you know hackles up. But it's, n- nobody's really coming in saying, "Yeah." the cinematography in this game sucks because that's objectively you can't even approach that (laughs) well it's like people who write game reviews aren't even used to talking about cinematography although maybe they should get acquainted um it's like Like, how many other games do you know with with a dedicated cinematographer like i can't think of a single one and that's (laughs) awesome I feel like um I feel like some some uh big AAA games do have someone credited with that and like and increasingly like with costuming and things like that right like it's almost almost aping a, a movie pipeline, but oh they they want to be movies yeah exactly exactly like it comes from a different place it doesn't come from using cinematic language it comes from an attempt at prestige in a certain sense which is not to say there's no craft to those games um but but it's I think you're right that this comes from a purer place and I think that's fair to say it's it's artisanal um. I will say I did not really plumb the reviews of the game. Um, I just sort of had my experience with it and, and listened to interviews, so I so I didn't ask you the same stuff you'd been asked before. Um, but yeah, I, I can imagine that the it can be frustrating because <laughs> because the thing about two millennial is that it comes frustratingly close to acknowledging that it's just a subjective opinion. You know, which which I think should be okay to say. Like, I think it should be okay for a review to say, "Absolutely, this yeah. is not. This is clearly not for me." Like, that's that's fine. That's actually really useful information if your readers tend to like what you, as a reviewer, like. You know what I mean? But but there's always yeah, this the, faux objectivity to it that can be very frustrating. The the, the most frustrating aspect uh, to me is when somebody plays like the first hour of the game and. Uh, makes a generalization about the rest of the game that is probably incorrect uh and it's like the game's short you can just finish it you're allowed to <laughs> um, right right but like that that's a small complaint because by and large you know we're among the you know the top rated games of the year and that's way beyond what we could have possibly expected like we're, we're thrilled with our critical response the, candidly you know yours was a game that i was not aware of during development and then as soon as it was release was close and it came out it just like my timeline was nothing else for a few days like it, it just exploded like it really really resonated um and having played it it's not hard to see why but obviously there's a certain amount of alchemy to that right like a, a lot of amazing games don't get that kind of attention <laughs> so it's it's awesome that lightning struck for one this good and this this timely yeah so like my my job for the past oof, i want to say year and a half almost two years has been marketing the game um because mm. you know 
once again is written there's nothing else to do really uh and you you would potentially expect you know the lead writer of a game to market that game on its writing but we shared so very little about the narrative um prior to release like there was a like a very vague synopsis uh there were the characters and that was it um and and i was, I was very lucky to be in a position where i could market a narrative game which are, which are very hard it's very hard to market narrative games um but i was able to market that like almost exclusively on the very very strong aesthetic um and that makes it you know because every every shot has had so much care put into it every shot is so screenshotable with uh you know with a snappy line of dialogue and that really helps on the marketing side because everyone's just like just going to post their their favorite screenshot um it's it's great it's 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 really 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 handy and and our trailers um put together by by kevin the the director uh have all just been like so visually arresting uh which has also been very very helpful and mysterious kind of deliberately they don't tell you that much about the narrative or, or like you get a sense of the characters Absolutely, but like, yeah. yeah like it's not, not that i'm accusing you of a bait and switch of any kind but but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily betray what the game is going to be it just intrigues you with that really beautiful aesthetic like all you would really know is it's about death and coffee which it is but there's a lot more going on in the game absolutely and and one thing i was a really big relief to me was um that the, the very relatively low number of people being like where's the barista gameplay because um, like we, we we never said there was going to be barista gameplay Some real talk i was dreading to... i was dreading having to like make people's complicated coffee orders and i was very <laughs> relieved that i just got to experience the emotional reactions to them without having to you know tap a bunch of things within the time and oh no you got an f like i i, I didn't really want to do that yeah like if, if you want to make drinks go play valhalla go play coffee talk they exist on their own they've done a good job of what they do um yeah we, exactly we, exactly having barista gameplay was pretty much never on the table for us it was something we just were not interested in doing because if your entire game revolves around like a half-baked drink mixing mechanic then it's going to be disappointing right and it's going to let down the rest of the game yeah i love valhalla i love coffee talk but there was something about this like it was clear to me from the jump that that's not what this game was about so i was i was immensely relieved to find that the game knew that if that makes sense absolutely yeah yeah, I think um, you've you've said previously that um, as a narrative designer, you know, once the game is sort of done, your this was a very smart thing you said that I that I'm, I, I don't mean to quote you to yourself, but I just want it on the record here that like then your job is to craft the narrative of the game or around the game. Um, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think you've like that's that's beautiful, right? Like the the narrative around the game is look at this unbelievably visually arresting thing. Don't you want to get to know these people? The narrative of the game is 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 that, but it's also a much stranger, you know, you know, uh, more humorous. Like you don't necessarily get jokes from the trailers. <laughs> you might from the screenshots because some of the dialogue is really really funny. But like one of the depths you you find when you explore the game itself is that that warm humor. Yeah, totally. Um... And and that extends to you know managing the socials etc. Uh, like I, I I pretty much just log on to the Necrobrista uh, the the Route Fifty Nine account and cause trouble. Like I, <laughs> I I'm, I'm I'm 
I have a very, very finely honed skill of making bad posts, and I put that to, to great use in, in my work. Such such a millennial skill. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you do, Does game recognize game for the Fall Guys uh, social media outreach then? I know this is controversial among social media managers, the way that that, that particular person handles you know the the uh the wooing of by brands and the and the community and the jokes and all that kind of stuff yeah i mean i I, i'm not really a big fan of the uh you know please be nice to us we're a tiny indie studio shtick they have 600 employees and like multiple offices (laughs) like i i I don't you don't don't love them you don't buy the narrative that's i guess that's why i was interested right like i was wondering (laughs) i was wondering if you thought it was a a finely crafted illusion or if you thought like you know the the mask has obvious cracks in it from your perspective yeah i mean you know and i'm I'm not not trying to 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 shit on them but you know we're a we're actually a very small studio um (laughs) and you're not playing that card i see i see (laughs) and and we, we we've never leaned on like oh yeah please be nice to us we're tiny it's like no we, we're, we're approaching this like sincerely uh like <laughs> ma- making jokes where we're, sh- we're shit posting all over the place but at the core it's like we're, we're having an honest dialogue with the people who uh have blessed us with our with their attention and um we we we, we tried very hard uh for example, like during the, the final few months before the game released, um, we, we didn't post a lot, um, partly because of that there was more important stuff happening on social media that we didn't want to drown out. Um, but also, we, we had pretty much nothing extra to say. And uh, like making, making jokes every week like would probably just get people frustrated about the game not being out yet. So we just elected to not do that. And... Uh, you know that that'd fly in the face of your your conventional wisdom of like always be you know in people's minds. But uh, p- part of the the respect that we have for our, our community and our fan base is we, we we trust you to trust us to not go anywhere. And you know, mm. you know the game's going to be out. We promise it's going to be out. When after all the delays, we're not going to you know make any more promises because uh it's all been out of our control uh but but just trust us and it, it will happen eventually and it did and uh we, we've, we've grown a really lovely community out of that that's i this is something that i think has emerged as a, a you know as a as a theme with any indie studio that that sort of you know tries to foster some kind of really authentic communication like not not authentic communication capital a capital c like it's a thing you can bottle and take a seminar on but actually authentic actual Mm. communication is just that when your players know you're human beings it makes a tremendous difference you know like i absolutely yeah yeah it's because i mean spoiler games are made by people uh whether it's you know whether it's uh you know dozens or hundreds or whatever the, the idea that there is no, another person on the other side of the equation rather than it just being frustrations at delays and anticipations of purchases and how many hours of my life will it eat and whatever when when you make it a more human interaction than that it, it makes perfect sense that that's going to foster a good community the kind of community you want absolutely and, and the rest of the team was on board with this um you know, at one point we had someone like actually be like you know what the fuck are you doing when is the game coming i'm so frustrated by this and before i could even respond um 
Brent, the cinematographer, like like swoops in with this incredibly like empathetic and, and very engaging and friendly answer. Um, and like I, I didn't ask him to do that, uh, but but I was I was I was so appreciative that um, you know it's not just me. Like we 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 wouldn't exist uh, without the this external support. Um, and and cultivating that relationship is is so important to us. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's beautiful. And uh, and again, I'm conscious of the time, so that's I mean that's a pretty good note to end on. If you're if you're good. Yeah, sure. Awesome. Yeah, no, and I'm not trying to rush you out the door. I just, again, <laughs> you've been super generous with your time and I appreciate it. Um, so the game is out on what? On uh, on Apple Arcade, uh, Steam, and it's next year sometime going to be out on PS4 and Switch. Is that right? That's the plan, yeah. And um, we're hoping to have all three of the free DLCs out in the next six months, but that's... Uh... You know, you, you never know what's going to happen. It's ambitious, but they're in the works. They're in the works, and they're uh, they're they're, gonna... they're very far along. They're they're, they're looking great. They're um, one of them's fully playable in the engine right now. The next one is like we still have to implement the dialogue, but all of the shots are done. Yeah, I guess I do have a parting shot. Then you know, you the, the pipeline of this game is crazy because because of just how how bespoke everything is. Has that pipeline gotten better for these DLCs, or do you feel like you've you've now mastered maybe not mastered but you feel like you've gotten better or more efficient or more effective at working in this way on this kind of game we've definitely gotten better um particularly around the time i joined we were often having to like throw away stuff um just just for you know loads of different reasons um but we've we've hit the point where yeah we're, we're pretty good at not wasting our time yeah, that's well said. That's well said. I mean, I feel like that's, you know, the the un, the unsung importance of of project management and and of synchronicity between teams. Like that's that's what it's about, right? Like not being able, or you know, when, when you can't waste your time because that means the project won't come out. Getting really good at not wasting it. Absolutely, yeah. And and like the 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 biggest constraint for us is the team size. Like if we had more people, mm-hmm. we'd be doing better. But uh, like it it just wasn't something we could do for for this project. Maybe the next yeah. one. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, it's also, I mean, this is a, a a big discussion with no definitive answer, but like, what is that critical mass where the team size has become big enough that each individual person's vision is not reflected quite so much? You know, that's that's the really big question, because I think there is a certain magic that can only happen with a small team. You know, it can only happen in the way it does anyway. Yeah, maybe like 20, 25 people. Is, is the limit before i say there's no answer but this actually does seem to be the consensus <laughs> roughly yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no totally yeah, totally we, we've had you know I, I think in total 12 13 14 people contribute to the game there's like eight currently and uh we're all punching it other weight like we're all working on like a million different things and uh I think we could definitely like very happily cope with more creatives in the mix. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you're punching above your weight shockingly successfully. There's uh, the 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 images, you know, the images, little Mac. You know, you're you're knocking down. <laughs> you are you are knocking King yeah. Hippo out uh, against all odds. It's a it's a we've really we got super armor on on our smash attacks. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Just a, a, a obnoxious levels of, of ground control, but get us in the air and, and we're, we're It's done. all over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
<laughs> no, the narrative is grounded in more ways than one. Fair enough. <laughs> so, so, so we'll close on the Smash metaphor. I'll tell people where they can get the game. Thank you again. I, uh, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this, and uh, and I, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. No, this was fun. This is a, a great way to spend a Thursday night. Oh, really, really happy to hear it. Well, thank you one more time, um, and have a really good one. Enjoy your enjoy your tea if you're still enjoying it. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Um, have a have a good day. You've, you're just starting yours. I am. Yeah, yeah. The, the cold brew is about finished, but I'll probably pour myself another one. <laughs> Be- begin, begin the day. Um, yeah. All right. Cheers. Have a good one. Yeah. See you, mate. And that's the show. You can get Necrobarista now on Steam and Apple Arcade. You'll be able to get it on other platforms later, and wherever you get it, there'll be some free DLC coming. Thanks one more time to Damon for a lovely conversation. The Everybody's Talking at Once podcast is hosted and produced by me, Drew Messenger Michaels, with often quite caffeinated support from Lucio Valentino and Francis Michelle Cannon. Congrats on the new name and the associated nuptials, by the way, Michelle. Sorry again that I couldn't be there. I blame the plague. I love you. Mazel tov. You can find the show wherever you're listening to it right now, obviously, as well as wherever else podcasts are a thing. If you really like the show and you are able to and would like to Patreonize it, you can do so at patreon.com slash E-T-A-O. Thanks tremendously to all of our current patrons. A very special thanks to the mysterious Ian K, Lucas Cosin, Carlos de los Santos, and Darth Raptora. See you next time. Take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and in the meantime, find lots more shenanigans at etaopod.com and etao.blog.